Welcome to a question and answer edition of the podcast. Thanks for being here. And it's always fun to do these episodes. These are kind of, um, these are roundups of sorts <laughs> in the sense of integrating a lot of the knowledge that I've learned from the guests over the course of the past months or year, how I've been integrating things into my own training, contemplating and thinking about different ideas and elements of human performance, and then getting the questions that you all have, seeing what you're interested in, and really synthesizing everything. This is a great chance to connect with people listening. And so I put out questions on social media. Thank you for those of you who submitted various questions for me. I do apologize if there have been some double-covered questions over the course of doing all these Q&As. Sometimes I, I, I try to, or I used to, try to make sure I didn't double-cover or, or repeat questions the first few times that I did these shows. At this point, I've done so many, I, I've probably double-covered a few questions, but compared to, let's say, an episode I might have done three years ago, some of my answers may have changed a little bit, and I think that's a good thing. It's important to have solid principles, but understanding that nuances change and the more our, our layers of awareness open over the years and the more things that we are aware of, we can give more complete answers or at least um, a more complete answer than in previous years just because we have access to more information and more pieces of that puzzle. Before we get started with the show today, I'd like to highlight our show's two sponsors, Lost Empire Herbs and SimplyFaster.com. Lost Empire Herbs is an herbalism company making the switch to herbalism, especially in the world of pre-workouts, but even just in general, paying attention to a natural supplementation process. I've been a huge fan of what Lost Empire is doing. I'm really impressed with the education behind their products, as well as the sourcing of what they uh, offer. And if you want to see some of my favorite herbs that I utilize for the course of improved strength, energy, and just overall well-being, you can check that out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly. And at that place, you can also get 15% off your order. If you want to check out pine pollen, which is a uh, one of four ingredients in one of my absolute favorite products from them, which is the Phoenix formula, you can get that for free. That's kind of a dip your toes in the herbalism water. You can check that out and get that for free with a modest shipping cost by heading to justflypinepollen.com. Our second sponsor is simplyfaster.com. They have been with us pretty much since square one. They are an amazing sports technology resource as well as information through their blog. And if you have any needs in the world of timing systems, force platforms, any sort of data gathering with velocity-based training, blood flow restriction training, inertial training, and so much more, they are your place to go. So please support them as they have been such a long-time and faithful supporter of this show. An amazing website with amazing customer service, and you cannot go wrong by selecting them for your sports performance technology needs. So let's get on to the Q&A. Thanks for everybody who passed along a question, and we'll start with good username. So good username asks, is there any such thing as a bad exercise? So this is a good question because I think, well, I would say, I always want to say it depends, which is like the total, you could call it the cop-out answer, the one that's very easy to say, but I'll get into it. So I do think that some exercises are just in general, just straight up for everybody better than others. And then there's other things that fall within the scope of what you're doing. So is it a specific exercise? So something that's specific to sprinting or jumping or throwing or whatever you're sports skill is shooting a basketball 
And then there's principles that apply to general exercises. So ones that are designed to deliver an opportunity for muscle strength and tension in respect to just how the human body works and then ultimately to support one's overall training goal. So for the sake of specific exercises, to me, a good specific exercise, and this goes more into the world of motor learning. Again, I've been doing a lot of motor learning type shows and ideas and concepts, especially in the last year on this show. So it's really important. As I answer these questions, hopefully you'll see how those ideas weave itself into day-to-day training ideas. So when we're talking about a good exercise, a good specific exercise allows for a level of exploration and self-learning within the scope of a specific sports skill. So basically, a good specific exercise has a set of constraints that are narrow enough to really fit with what you're trying to do. For example, sprinting is an easy one. If I'm trying to sprint faster, I need to be moving forward at high velocity rather than, I don't know, moving I guess backwards, backwards would be general to a supportive of of forward sprinting, but you need to be having the basic idea and then you can add constraints in like low mini hurdles. You can have a constraint on a constraint like run over low mini hurdles and by low I'm talking four inches or 10 centimeters and run with one arm only. How did that feel? Okay, now run over those low mini hurdles with one arm only and when you finish the course, let's say eight, Bring in the other arm and notice how it feels. Notice the change. Notice what running with only one arm gave you, and now you can move out of it. So that offers a little bit of room for uh, learning, just a little bit of individual nuance. Athletes have different rib cage, cage shapes and structures and amounts of anterior compression, and no two athletes are going to swing their arms 100% the same. Uh, of course, you're going to get some very, very similar motions between athletes with similar archetypes and, and rib cages and, and compression types, but you're going to get some different total movements between some different types of athletes. So allowing the individual to solve the problem in their own way on some level is important for me to a good specific movement. So a bad specific movement, I believe, is one that relies too much on positions and internal cues. So back to the sprint example, okay, you're going to sprint. And I want your, and we could even say the hurdles, the mini hurdles are there, that's fine, or they're not, but saying, okay, I want your knees parallel to the ground for this sprint. And I want your arms at 90 degrees, both of those I would never say, (laughs) Um, but I want your arms like fixed or hitting these specific positions and then having the athlete do that and expecting them to do that when they actually run or try to run their fastest and run in that exact manner where there is actually no room for problem solving. I do believe that sometimes you could use these things uh, as a learning. If the, if the intention of that position is for learning, I think that can be okay or awareness. Some people do talk about internal cues or we could even say positions as, as a method to generate and drive awareness. So perhaps I could give a position with the arm. For example, I want you on that front side. I want you to keep that thumb really close to the shoulder on that front side swing of the arm. To me, I would, I would potentially maybe use that just to show an athlete what the, what it feels like to be tighter on the front side and notice how it might change their stride. But I would never expect them to run that way when they're actually trying to run their fastest. It would just be a, hey, let's draw your attention to what happens when you're here and now you can move forward. So that I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I hope you understand what I mean with the specific things. Um, you could say the same thing with like basketball, for example. I'm trying to teach someone to shoot and the specific and positional would be your arm must be held in this position, flick your wrist just like this. 
and trying to line everything up in a very specific way. I was actually taught like that. I remember going to like basketball camp back when I was probably like eighth grade and people trying to really like line up my shot and it just didn't resonate with me. I, I would have think I would have done a lot better with setting up constraints that would have allowed me a little bit of exploration and the ability to explore obviously not being all over the place, if I really legitimately had some, and I'm not a shooting coach for basketball, but if I legitimately had some things that were outside of the bandwidth of good shooting practice, yeah, those do need to be shored up. But a, a more of a constraints-based approach would have been helpful for me. So within the scope of, and I'm sure the question was asked within the scope of more general exercises. So movements in the weight room, movements that are, I guess, what we more typically associate as exercise. I wouldn't even necessarily say sports skills are, are exercise. To me, they're fun. <laughs> but exercise, is, it invokes the idea of discipline, and uh, which is an awesome thing. But I, I think that when we think exercise, we do think things that happen to be in the gym. So for me, a good exercise in the gym, and I do believe there are, are generally better ones than others, but I don't believe that any exercise of itself is, is really bad, it, unless uh, for the, the sake of being exercised, there's just way too many degrees of freedom. So for example, we always throw out the straw man that no one does of do it well i don't know i haven't been to the commercial there's probably does happen at commercial gyms that i haven't been to but like standing on one leg on a balance ball doing you know arm curls or something like that and where there's so many degrees of freedom that there's no solid muscular tension based adaptation that can happen i do say that is a straw man and i will say also i use i use balance discs for foot training training harder balance discs because I feel like the feedback loops are tighter and you can get the intrinsic foot muscles working. And in that sense, I am creating muscular tension in an area that doesn't often get it, which is the intrinsic foot. When you do like PVC pipes or balance discs, you get a lot of that intrinsic footwork. So even balance work, I think it does get a bad rap. But to me, it's more like when I have so many degrees of freedom, like the idea of being on a balance disc, doing something else, I think that that can drive novelty and again, even what's a bad exercise, like you'll see LeBron James warming up for basketball and balance discs, throwing a ball back and forth. To me, that's that's not an exercise for, for strength. That is a novelty driver or an attention driver. So if you were saying, okay, well, I'm going to warm up with the crazy, you know, whatever the circus, insert your circus exercise that you see the bored athlete who posts it on social media and it gets, you know, however many likes. If you want to use that as an attention driver, you could if it fits with your overall training paradigm. I personally really wouldn't. I, I tend to use games and game-based constraints or even parkour-based constraints or things like that. Anyways, but I'll, I will say like a bad exercise, I just think has so many degrees of freedom for the sake of training and adaptation that that would go outside the scope. My next layer of what I look at to be a good or a bad exercise is, does it allow a balance of expansion and compression? So in terms of, let's just t say a a back squat two parallel with the feet flat on the ground. Some athletes can hit that squat without too much of a problem. Other athletes are going to have to sit way back and arch their lumbar or round it or just do a lot of weird or unhealthy compensations uh, with the feet flat to hit that depth. So when I'm looking at some of these movements, I think about, well, where is it? What is the majority uh, in terms of expansion, which expansion is a little bit more related to kind of more of an early stance. I am bringing my thorax back. I am opening up space, uh, especially let's just say like the low back, which tends to be arched and compressed in a lot of lifting. To me, is there an opportunity for that low back to be expanded, lengthened even a little bit, if you will, 
Is there an opportunity for an inhalation where the air is filling spaces? And then is there an opportunity for compression? So when I actually am generating a little bit of that bilateral internal rotation, like if I'm looking at the reversal of an Olympic lift, for example. And Olympic lifts are great. Most of you listening have seen an Olympic lift, especially like a front view, high level Olympic lift. You see this wonderful balance of these expansive and compressive ideals. And so you would look at the pull off the ground, you're going to see the knees pushed out. And even throughout the course of that quick pull or the second pull, you still see the knees pretty much out, which is expansive. And then they drop and they hit that catch. And in that peak reversal of the catch, they need compression. They need things to come into center to reverse that pressure out of the bottom. So you'll see the knees take inwards. You see compression as they're standing up. You'll see those knees rotate back out into that expansive nature. So the athlete will make that. And the Olympic lifting shoes do help with that because they do elevate the heels. That allows earlier access to the heels. That allows for that better balance of expansive and compressive forces. I I feel like I'm, I am without visual. I don't want to get overly complicated in the weeds with that. So for example, just uh, in general, like a, a deep barbell back squat or even, um, yeah, even below half depth for some people, but like getting into or below, well below that 90 degrees of knee bend can be, if I look at expansion and compression, can be a much more compressive event, uh, meaning it's really relying on compressing like that low back space for example, to reverse the weight. It could be, and, and also like getting into the toes really early, like moving into the toes and the forefoot early, those toes biting down early. That is a more compressive event. So with those compressive events, uh, and on some level, we do need compression to reverse movement. So yes, that is a good thing. We do need power when we reverse movement. But when lifts push us there and intensify that position and really drive the adaptations associated with compression, we can have some negative things happen. We can, it's easy to say, but we can be more susceptible to injury due to increased like pelvic tilts. When in sport, we need more movement options. We can also be jammed into late stance. So we aren't able to use the, the setup or the load through early and mid stance quite as well. We may not be able to rotate as well. It may be more, even more stressful on the nervous system because we're just always compressing ourselves. And uh, you could uh, even do table tests or just range of motion, motion tests over time. And you might notice range of motion losses due to changing the shape or structure of the body by just spending too much time in those compressive positions that don't allow for much expansion. So again, <laughs> kind of being long-winded here, but to me, a good exercise is balance. So to me, a balanced squat is one where the load is more often, I, 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 it's not that I'll never do back squats. I will occasionally choose to utilize them. But I would rather, in most cases, actually use like a hex bar deadlift in that situation or a back squat, at the least a back squat that has the heels uh, slightly elevated, not a crazy elevation like 20, 25 degrees, but something like 5 or 10 degrees of slant, just allowing the athlete to get heels earlier on the way down to expand more on the way down, and then they can compress more easily and efficiently on the way up and just not get stuck in compression too soon. But to me, a good exercise offers that balance. So to balance, we can front load movements more. So like a squat, we can do a heels elevated front squat or a zercher front squat. Usually single leg split squat with both feet even also offers a more of an even distribution of that compression and expansion. Once we get into rear foot elevated split squats, some athletes can manage the balance really well. Other athletes who are really far forward with their center of mass 
they will get pushed even further into that that late stance orientation. And so for them, it becomes an imbalanced exercise. So to me, a bad exercise is just one in respect to the athlete that's just pushing them into a state of being imbalanced. Athletes should be able to manage the expansion on the way down and to have not a compressed spine on the descent, but they should be able to have an expansiveness through the spine and rib cage on that part, and then switch things over. So I've just been thinking about things. I always like to think about things in balance and think I, I don't really even think good or bad. I just think is this balanced, is this offering a balanced adaptation? And then if you have can create the potential through the movement, you can create this um, expansive potential and this compressive ability when I do my plyos and my throws and my jump or my sprints and all that stuff that is very explosive. I give myself the options there to be to be great at those. Uh, to me, if I'm just doing uh, basic general gym work that offers opportunity for both states, and then I go do all my explosive stuff dynamically with body weight, I think I'm in a pretty good place. I, I think um, it's it can be a negative if I'm just relying so hard on all these compressive things in the gym over a long period of time. I don't believe that there's a sustainable approach as as the more balanced approach. That was, I may have took that question pretty far, but that's okay. I do want to get to all these other ones. So let's get on to those. Let's get on to those. Um, so we have the next question with SS, uh, SSL. I typed it like an I, more like an L. SSL heel. It says, how do we speed up soccer players? So to me, the soccer players uh, and speeding up, I don't, there's, to me, it's the same as any other field sport. I don't think there's necessarily a, a specificity to soccer as this sport compared to like field hockey or, or playing even even like rugby on a, uh, on a level like athletes where they're just continuously moving on a field and there's change of direction, there's linear sprints. It's all pretty much the same thing. But again, with speed work, most of the speed work, in fact, I would say 90% of it, 90 to 95% on the base level comes within the sport, the practice itself, because now we are linking speed to decision-making and reacting and I've heard the example given with uh, you could speed up a soccer player. I've heard this for tennis as well. Do a lot of linear sprints, so we're getting them faster. And then, but all of a sudden, they're off sides, or the tennis player isn't able to control their linear speed in respect to their typical game strategies. And so that's where I mean, or that's what I'm getting at when I say like your speed, your your main speed work is within the game because it's all it's all there. But I do want to look at, and I will say on, on one level, that's not much fun if I'm the sports performance coach because I want to I wanna get you better at that 30-meter dash. I want to get your 10-meter fly better. I want to see these improvements. And that's where track and field is a lot of fun too, by the way. If I'm, doing, uh, you know, if I'm playing football and then I go do track, like it's all kind of built in right there. I, get my, I do get my, let's put a number on this sprint time, and it is the sport. It's the thing. It is the... The thing we're seeing improve, improve. so I, I totally get that. I think that's important, and even within the sport itself, now with data we have, uh, we have in-game data that says you hit this top speed during the game. That does make that that does actually tie things into the game even more. But of course, as previous podcast guests have said, sometimes a high team speed means that you like in football you were getting beat and just chasing the other team around the whole time so it wasn't actually because you were winning <laughs> however that's not really but for this it's not really the point so much more it's well how do i optimally train speed as needed for the game and i also give the athlete a fun experience of getting faster and so for soccer and and change of direction field sports uh, to me i believe the biggest bucket that isn't filled so much is probably that high quality 
top speed upright running, so where we're going 30, 40 uh, meters or more in a straight line at maximal velocity or flying 10, uh, I believe that is the bucket that we can can fill well. We've had a podcast with Joel Reinhardt and Andrew Cormier talking about that and, and fly 10 and feed the cats applied to to field sports. And so I, I resonate with that. I think that's a, I, I think that's a good principle being able to do that and kind of microdose that just running one or two a week, like they did even, I believe in season to me, that's, that's a solid place that you can go because you look at the other buckets, what they're doing and it's all acceleration and change of direction. And, and I do think that uh, like in the early off season, when they're not playing as much, that is the time we can come in and do good, solid acceleration work. And we can look at some of the strategies and I almost prefer strategies to, to mechanics um, with, with uh, team sport players, because in some ways it goes back to what I said with the constraints, the, we're going to work acceleration mechanics. And that tends to be, it's just a bunch of positions uh, that athletes are asked to hit that may not fit with their actual strategy as a specific to their body, their structure, their specific range of motions, their specific strengths, and how much rotation does their body want to use in the course of accelerating and all these things. So to me, that off season where they're not doing quite as much acceleration, that's the place to really dig into some of those acceleration mechanics. Resisted, resisted sprinting is always going to be the best constraint to achieve that and to get those things. I believe hills are great as well. That could even be your place where you're doing your short, your short jumps for distance, your your multi bounds, like standing triple jumps, standing five, your double repeated like doubles, making competitions out of those things. But again, once you get in season and you're really practicing, how many, I mean, the, the individual is doing so many accelerations, you need to ask yourself, uh, what is, where, where do I fit in best? And then we also look at the scope of the gym uh, within that acceleration development, bringing balance to the body, looking at strength throughout joint angle positions. To me, I, there's been research out that's shown that like a deep squat only goes so far in acceleration. Uh, the first step in an acceleration is around two-tenths of a second, and then you're descending on the way out. So at some point, a deep squat is not going to transfer anymore. But athletes who just have a really poor squatting ability, period, they have really bad tibial internal rotation or other factors in the kinetic chain, they have a really hard time accessing their big toe well. Yes, these are things that we can do. We can get into the gym and we can give them these pieces, help improve these pieces in the gym that are not, I guess you could say, sports-specific. I'm doing air quotes here. And then the athlete will get in their sport, and then they can use that in their sports-specific practice. And uh, like Joel Reinhardt even said, the ideal even like conditioning for like soccer, I believe he had the example, it would be a small-sided game. And in so many ways, if we can just create the potential for athletes to be able to use more of their body in a better way, and then they go play, that's, that's a really efficient way of doing it. So just kind of wrapping it up, we want to create the potential in the gym. The off season is probably a better time to really dig into acceleration. Beyond that, looking at filling the buckets, which is pop end speed. I think that's a good strategy for once we're actually getting uh, to what is a soccer player not getting. Uh, last thing, and I've probably mentioned this before, but I, I can't remember this coach's name. He wasn't a guy who was like really on social media and posting everything. I think all I had was his email. It wasn't like find me here at this you know Twitter handle. Uh, and I saw him doing some really cool stuff with soccer. So I'll just highlight this last that I just thought was amazing. I, maybe I mentioned this on Joel and Andrew's show, but he would do, um, he had like uh, agility, different like hoops and cones and whatnot set up, I believe, on one side of the field, something like that. Not in like the circus, you know, that oh, we're doing speed ladder dance agility, but more just things to have athletes do change of directions, get them fatigued, 
And then they would sprint across the field, like 30, 40, 50 yards over mini hurdles, just to make sure they weren't like reverting into excessive push lean forward mechanics. They were able to keep good running mechanics, upright running mechanics across the field. And then they would go and they would fatigue themselves on the other side, or they would just repeat that process where they're uh, where it's saying, hey, we're getting into a level of fatigue, like you're going to be in the game. And then we're getting into upright running where a lot of hamstring injuries occur. And we're just making sure that your mechanics are in the bandwidth of what good upright running is as you go across the field. And that also reminds me of what Joel Reinhardt had said about strategies as well. And I do think about having different strategies in that I think it's good for soccer players to be able to get into an upright running strategy that isn't necessarily just another version of their acceleration. Uh, and I, I think a lot of you can see what I mean when, when I say that, in that athletes should be able to feel a little bit different strategy when they're actually upright running versus just this uh, very push-reliant acceleration. So having the different strategies, also a very helpful tool. Next question comes from jgill182, which is staple exercises for university basketball. Uh, for this, you know, I just think about what Eric Huddleston had said. I, I mean, I haven't uh, worked with university basketball in a long time. I've, my only experience where I was in charge of the physical prep was at a Division three school. And to me, it was just all about maxing out vertical jump. How high can I get these guys jumping as well as just getting them strong and generally prepared for the game? And in three months or so, I was like, I would train them in the fall. And in about a three month time period, I, I consider myself highly successful. And this was back in my 20s. I, I didn't actually, um, maybe I did. I, I feel like my biggest test was just watching them in the layup lines dunking. <laughs> uh, and, and with that as the test, uh, the team gained around th- uh, two to five inches uh, on their jumps on average. It was really awesome to see the changes as these guys were, were going through that and doing their dunks and getting better. But I, I put just so much on that. I wasn't injury prevention was not really on my radar. I'm just like, ah, I'm the track coach and working with basketball to see if we can get these guys jumping higher and dunking. And uh, what I was doing there was mostly just like six sets of three power, like like clean Olympic type derivatives, getting into squats and ground based movements and the typical the typical squats and Olympic lifts and presses. And then we would get into landings and plyos and depth jumps and those kind of things. So. I had a nice little split set with that, and it worked from the sense of getting them more powerful. What I'm looking at more now, and I don't work directly with a university team now, but I defer to people like Eric Huddleston, who's talked about basketball training a few times on this show, and the sense of saying, okay, well, we want to give these guys, or these guys are always in explode mode. They're always in this late stance explode. Uh, a lot of it too, like being back on defense, needing to be uh, where the shin is like forward over the foot and they're in this position where they really have to be able to go anywhere at any time or you're just cutting past a defender or whatever you're doing, the nature of, of basketball in this as a court sport is that you are in this explode late stance by nature. So Eric talked about the need to bring those athletes back in the gym so that doing things like a safety bar squat with the heels elevated and really working the ability to get back and reference heels. Uh, you could look at that like a Zercher split squat with the front foot elevated. Things like things where the load is in front, where the heels are elevated, where I'm bringing athletes back. And then when I want to be powerful and I want to get a little bit more compression and explosion, then moving to something like a hex bar deadlift with the feet flat on the ground. For me, I, I like I liked using a variety of foot positions as well. I like David Weck's Weck 45 position. Um, I like allowing athletes to a little bit of exploration as well before they get to their main sets. I like oscillatory reps where you're doing three quick oscillations in the 
middle position and then jumping upwards. Uh, movements like that and combinations I really like for those explode days. So I, I really like what Eric does with that, just being mindful. And it, and from talking with Eric too, he had set it up where coming off of games, it was all reset pace stuff, getting people back to reference their heels, back into more of that early stance. And then as uh, they move towards the game, need to revert to getting that power, that a little bit more compression. So then they'd hit the hex bar deadlifts, moving more into the game-based uh, situation. So in terms of just exercise selection, I really like that idea. I also had Daniel Bove on the show recently talking about the quadrant method. And I've also taken elements of that in working with basketball players, not the whole team, but individual basketball players. I have seen the value of having that heavy hex bar de- deadlift or the heavy day on the competitive day. I, I think that's really cool. So that's something I've taken from Daniel, really like it. And so I've been integrating that in as well. So that fits with the explode. So it's like that competition day is your peak explode. Doing something that is even still compressive on that day is fine. Then waiting till that day coming off uh, after the rest day and then you're back in the gym again. Okay, now it's the reset day. Now we're, we're moving into that. I also, I really like extreme isos, Jay Schrader's um, extreme isometric movements and using those on the tail, um, either as that big expansive stimulus or even um, for me, I would add, if I did like a hex bar deadlift after a game, even doing a few minutes of extreme isos to kind of cool down and start to transition the body towards recovery, really like doing that stuff. Uh, I probably could talk about that for a little while, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just leave it there. Uh, oh, I will say one more thing, actually. I had a note from this because Coach uh, Scott Thom, who has been on this show, who has been a basketball strength coach, a basketball coach, he works on both ends of that spectrum, worked with him at Cal. He made the comment that every day is arm day or something to that tune. Like you, basketball is a sleeveless sport uh, as opposed to um, some other sports where you have sleeves on. So because it's a sleeveless sport, I think there is something just mental, psychological with arms. So every day is arm day. And I, I do think that there's definitely something there. So I would perhaps uh, be inclined to, I, and I can't say that this my programs uh, really entirely reflect this, but uh, I will say that that is, that's something that does enter my mental space. And when considering kind of the team vibe and all that, uh, when it comes to basketball is that that is that is part of it. So something to keep in mind. But yeah, with basketball and other sports, uh, court sports, that is my thoughts there. All right, next question comes from Pratush, who asks, do you find value in spending time on switching drills? So uh, thanks, Pratush, for asking this, and I'm excited to give you my answer on this. And, and switching drills, by this we mean sprint drills where there's a switching action. These have been around, um, from my understanding, even since the 60s, people have been doing this. So there's nothing new about these things, although we do see it quite often. But like where I'm in kind of an A-skip type format and I'm switching the legs really quickly, Chris Corfus has called them booms or boom booms. We've seen them from a variety of coaches. So anything where you're standing in a, a sprint type high knee position and rapidly switching the feet in the air. And so outside of any sort of sprint position stuff or run tall ideas or Anything that has to do with that, I will say that the switching drill idea is good from the perspective of Adarian Bars called it remove replace. So the idea of athletes who need to remove the foot on the ground before the foot that the foot on top or the knee in the air drops down to the ground. I'm sure those of us who have administered the switching type drills or sprint switching type type drills have seen athletes who they just drop the leg in the air before the foot pushes off. And those athletes tend to be very 
uh, I would say like overly ground reliant, overly compressive, overly push heavy. They just don't really know how to operate their body in the air. And as I've seen it, I believe that actually relates a lot more to sprint acceleration than it does um, upright running. Just because acceleration, if you look at like total magnitude of knee drive in respect to body position, where the torso actually is, like if you took someone accelerating, you flipped them upright, you would actually be getting a lot more knee drive in acceleration than you actually would in top end speed uh, in respect to where the leg is in the backside of the body as well. And so in some senses, I actually see those drills having a positive general carryover. Uh, and I, and it, I believe it is general to some level of acceleration mechanics, especially track acceleration mechanics, a little bit more than team sport. But like with, with strategies, it's fun to learn. And, and I think good to learn those different strategies that could be applied from different situations. I, I will say um, in basketball, speaking of basketball, I saw a Zion William, uh, Williamson clip from probably three years ago where he, um, I think he like blocked a shot or maybe he didn't block a shot, but maybe he had gone up for a rebound or something and passed it. Anyways, there was a quick transition where he was on defense and his transition into offense to sprinting down the court was a switch. Like you saw this switch happening almost in there in that like transition right into acceleration. And he blew by everyone and then went down and dunked it. And it was amazing. Like, and it was, it's not just, yes, it is coming from a muscle power to a degree that obviously a very powerful in, uh, individual, but also an incredibly athletic individual who has that ability to make that switch to transition into acceleration so seamlessly. So I, I do think that is good at the remove, replace the switch with uh, a lot of times it can be done in conjunction with posture and not being overly pump handled down from a sternum perspective. Having a long spine, I think is good for acceleration as well. And, and upright running, upright running, we want to, I believe the optimal Adarian bars, athletic posture, being able to push that sternum forward in space to create that as opposed to just saying full body lean, we do want that chest forward so that we're actually kind of falling forward in a sense. It almost like helps us. It helps. Uh, There's an interview with Usain Bolt where he was talking about how it, um, it actually like helps pull you forward and even when you're tired and sprinting. Anyways, I do think that there's, long story short, I think there's elements of that that can be very helpful for sprint acceleration. Do I do them personally for sprint acceleration? Not really. I have other things that I will work on and utilize more so than the switching type drills, but they were in my program and someone said, you have to use these. I, I could find a use for them for sprint acceleration. I think that's fine. I think that where the switching drills can fall a little bit short of the target is I think that when people, when people see them, they are immediately drawn to them because they see positions that are very easy to, to reference and, and think of, oh, this is where you should be when you sprint. But then we should get into that because a lot of times in those sprinting drills, and now this is transitioning to upright running, is one, usually they're in the context of running tall, which to me, I, I've been looking at that more in, in how much expansion do you have with you when you run and how much or how compressed are you in upright running? Like Chris Corfus has talked about people who squat too much, you say back squat too much, they start to run kind of like they squat. So they're carrying a lot of compression, or we could even say an internal rotation bias with them into their sprinting. So the majority of an upright sprint step is more expanded. It is more of a supinating event than it is pronating. And I think that's important to understand. However, that's that's like one end. That's almost the 3D element of it. That's also the air, the inhalation element of it. When we look from the side, if we look at sprinting from the side, you will never see an athlete sprinting from the side who has a completely straight leg underneath them from that side view. The leg must yield, okay? Or, or it compresses and it bends or whatever term you want to put on that. But there must 
be a bend when an athlete is sprinting. So I'm looking directly from the side view in that leg. And some athletes will have more bend than others. That is variable. There is no magic amount of of tallness or squattiness (laughs) in that side view. That is made up or that optimal is made up of many factors of an athlete's structure. You could even look at like their rib cage. Are they like a Dwight Howard Superman where they handle reversal? And Eric Huddleston's talked about this. There's there's individuals who handle reversal of pressure extremely well, where if I have like a cone, like a traffic cone, and I'm dumping uh, water down into the bottom and I have my hand over the hole at the bottom and, and I like bounce it, it bounces, it bounces back up very easily if it's all bouncing uh, out of a small, a small spot and upwards. On the flip side, if I took that traffic cone and I reversed it, and this would be extreme, no one's built like that. Either way, it's just, it's kind of an extrapolation of things. But if I had the fluid going down from a very small point at the top into a larger point at the bottom, it would not bounce back up easily. So that's just like one example of how different athletes are built differently to have an optimal level of compression. And there's there's a lot more than that when it comes to what's the optimal bend. Anyways, that being said, I just think that so oftentimes when these switching drills are being administered, there's no regard for that. It's just get as tall as possible. And because there's also no horizontal velocity present and no individual nuance given to solve that problem, it's just something that's, it's not really a problem solving. It's just kind of a position. It's an ideal. And I think within the scope of that, I believe uh, for upright running, the adaptations are more in the realm of just general strength. It is an expansive situation, which again, upright sprinting is more of an expansive nature. So, you know, from a general, okay, I'm getting a little bit more externally rotated. Let's say maybe I'm, I'm really giving some more room for external tibial rotation to help uh, or set up a better ground strike, something like that. I think that's okay. But in terms of the actual nuances and kinematics, not kinetics, but kinematics, that's joints and levers in motion transfer to sprinting. I don't think there's as much there. It was interesting. I used to be all about, and I speak from a place too, where I've done this stuff. <laughs> I did switching drills and step over the knee wickets for years uh, before I met a Darian Bar. And in integrating a Darian's thoughts and ideas, it's helped me as well as the expansion compression ideals. I believe it's helped me to see where this all sits in, and I believe a little bit better place. I think you can experiment with the switching drills with different hip heights. So, okay, like if you do want to do them and say, all right, you're going to squat down one inch, go ahead and do that. Notice how it feels. Tell me if there's a feeling that replicates what you might feel more in upright running, maybe squat down two inches, have athletes go through different, just different lever systems and feel the different lever systems and feel how that might connect to their actual running. Again, there's no horizontal velocity, but I do think it's interesting to offer athletes those different levels where they can make different connections rather than one absolute position. And again, I just don't believe the absolute positions, just like internal cues. I don't think they're quite as transferable. Things need to be in a bandwidth and there needs to be a level of intuiting and problem solving there. In terms of the switching drills that I really like, that I do use, Russian lunges, speed Russian lunges. Like to me, that is switching with rotational, like strong rotational elements. There is a wheel in sprinting. And even all the, the sprinting drills are kind of more like a sewing machine. It's things going up and down. And again, general, there's good general adaptations there, hip flexors and calves and expansion and rhythm. But in terms of when we get like sprinting and we're running fast, now we have a wheel, we have a big wheel and it's turning. And so to me, I think a Russian, a speed Russian lunge, so think like a lunge where you're also relatively expanded. So the back leg is more straight than it is bent. And I'm just switching in the air as fast as I can. And my arms must also uh, connect with that switch that has more moving parts that fit with rotation 
And I've felt over time too, like I, I said, I used to do all these switching drills and things. And I, I saw really fast athletes that ran well and we'd start doing the stretch, the, the stitching drills, <laughs> the sewing machine, the switching drills. And they just had the hardest time with them, like for some reason. And, and that was, I think, one of those things in my brain where I'm like, okay, athletes who can sprint well, they're having trouble with these like tall switching sprints or booms or whatever you want to call them. And not that yeah, I think there might have been some value if they got better at those. I don't think getting better at those is going to hurt them or anything, but it was just things to think about. And, and what are the specific constraints that really matter? And, and so anyways, the, the, the switching constraint that I probably use more is that rush and lunge, that speed rush and lunge. I think there's also more room for, I, because we talk about too, compression and expansion. To me, there is more room for a expanded state and a compressed state within the speed rush and lunge because once you get into that full lunge split position, you are in a more expanded position with more muscle length and then you are switching and compressing in the air. You're that almost like pronation in the air type effect that you have that pronation in the air in sprinting and then you're moving into re-expansion on the other side. You can throw bounces in there. You can make it dynamic. You can do it even to a, a beat or a metronome or music. And to me, I, I like that. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, again, if someone said you have to use switching drills, I'd find a way to use them. Uh, and I think they could be effective. But I really, that, that Russian lunge, it also has a strength element to it. I think there's a good strength and just general element there that's really powerful for a lot of people. So also, I will say one more thing with the Russian lunge is it does incorporate the backside of the body. And so this is, this is important. I think people have maybe heard me say this before. And I learned this from the swim world is a lot of athletes, uh, if we look at motor maps, where are they sensing themselves in space and, and where, where are they working and where are, they, where are they putting their intention and their focus? A lot of times it's all on the front side. And this had come from swimming and I just started thinking about this in the scope of swimming and then I was like, oh, we'll track too. And where, where is the intent, attention in all the drills for the most part? Again, so maybe some people will talk about backside elbows. But everything is front, like, all right, knees in front and heel up, knee up, toe up in front. I don't use that, that cue or instruction either, but you know what I'm saying? Like everything is just high knees in front and think about the things in front and think about your arm in front. And, and again, I'm not completely against things that happen in the front side of the body. I, I do have athletes consider or pay attention to things that are going on there, especially the arms in front and the action there. But we don't really have a lot with the backside of the body. <laughs> athletes usually just don't pay attention to it. But if we look at really elastic athletes who manage elastic energy and whip in that motion well, and even think of like the swing leg and jumping where it's like this elastic, the swing leg is loading behind. It's a big kick forward. As I've heard of Darian Barr use that, uh, that terminology in triple jumping, it swings from that backside into that front side. And it's the backside that creates the front side. If we just treat things as only front side, they actually become more muscled, more afterthought, more volitional. And by afterthought, I mean the chance to store the energy behind you is done. And now I have to create or recruit more muscle to get that uh, limb going in front of me. So I feel like athletes who are just very purely front side are more, they also tend to be a little bit more the quad dominant type, if you will. They tend to be more of muscling movements type things. So the ability to load up the backside and feel the backside is really important. And one of my, uh, I guess you called it a pet peeve with the ISO lunge stuff. Like we had Mark Wetzel on the show a few times and I think it was after his first or second appearance, I would see a lot of people on social media saying, all right, we've done these ISOs and we're doing ISO lunges today. And that's awesome. I, I always love to see more ISO lunges out there. But in a lot of them, the athlete would just have a bent, like a bent back leg where the knee is pretty much under the hip. And to me, that is another instance of just being very front side oriented where 
when you watch the exercise being done, it's with the back, the back leg is relatively straight. You're trying to pull down and you're almost trying to pull the knees apart from each other. That's part of the balance of the movement. We're expanding both sides of the body uh, apart from each other, uh, at least in terms of the knees. And so I just think that with that uh, Russian lunge, you also, it's, it's a balanced thing. It's, it's, you have muscle length and you also have things that are happening behind the body. And even in sprinting too, we tend to just shun backside. But there can be good things that happen to the backside to set up good collisions and set up good front side. <laughs> and so anyways, I just think it's important to have these things that are balanced that aren't just all front side, all front side completely dominant, but that we are also learning to, and you could even say the arms and sprinting, like watch Usain Bolt do his warmups and his sprint drills. You see a lot of intentional backside like whip because that's this elasticity that's going to be returned in that front side action you don't see Usain Bolt skipping like um like in a track meet when you see like the throwers doing power skips to warm up and this is fine for if you're a thrower but it's a lot of like forced muscled arms into the front side like you're punching up like super mario going to punch the question you know block or whatever it is uh you kind of see more of that muscled front side whereas you watch like Usain Bolt sprinting a lot of the Jamaican sprinters you see this like elastic backside and so we need to respect the backside. We need to respect things that happen behind the body and get athletes in tune with what's happening behind them as well as in front. Okay, next question here. Kyle Upmore says, sprinters taking too many steps in the start or acceleration. So someone who's like rushing their steps, you could say they don't have enough patience. And that's pretty common, especially in like field sport athletes or football athletes. You're getting athletes ready for the combine. In football, one of the first things you need to teach them is just patience. And that comes on a few levels. One is, uh, and this also comes to having more than one strategy for things. Uh, the track strategy for acceleration or the, even the 40-yard dash is more patient than many situations in, in team sport. In team sport, you might like, all right, I gotta, just got to take three steps and just get to the ball. And it's three quick steps to get to the ball with the center of mass pretty low. And again, in acceleration, you do want to have a lowish center of mass. If you're too high, you're just not going to be able to get on the ground very well. You're not going to be able to get into mid stance very well. But uh, hopefully you know what I'm saying. Like team sports demands a lot of different short, quick steps with different setups to fit the demands of the game. Once you don't have a player to other players to worry about or where the ball's going or any sort of strategy you can open up your stride and even start that process earlier. You can allow the body or the even think about the hips oscillating back and forth, the, the pelvic bones turning up and down and oscillating and projecting the nature of that projection. Uh, and I, I heard Stu McMillan talk about this at a TFC back in the day, is that projection can be longer in each step in that, in that normal, not normal, that track sprint versus like a team sport where maybe those hips have to oscillate a little faster. They have to get down and they have to get to that ball. And with field sports or team sports or whatever, when we look at the nature of it too, like, like late stance oriented, like I talked about, being late stance oriented, so we just think everything is kind of pushed forward. If I'm just standing, so if you're assessing someone and you say, okay, are you more late stance or early stance or, or whatever, and you're looking at them from the side, and I have to thank Alex Effer for this, who's been on the podcast, is uh, just look at where their hips are in just a normal standing position. So are their hips uh, like almost over the shoelaces of their feet? Are their hips just pushed forward in space? Maybe they're even hyperextending their knees a little bit. You see that a lot in, in female athletes as these hips that are forward. Maybe there's a little knee hyperextension. Those athletes whose hips are really far forward being in late stance, like 
always being in that ball of the foot type thing. And we, we do think, oh, balls of the feet, explosive, great. And yeah, you once you get to that transverse arch, balls of the feet, like Rob has said, that's the moment of truth. You need to have some bounce there for sure. But if you live there, you tend not to be able to set things up very well. Like again, we talked about the backside. You got to work the backside to be able to get to that front well, to be able to get to that late stance well. So if I'm stuck in late stance, and I'm accelerating, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of movement options. I need to be able to actually get back into mid stance a little bit more where I can get more into the arches of my foot, get a little bit more movement options, get a little bit more expansion. So I can actually work the stride a little bit better. That may actually involve a little bit more even lateral motion. You see those uh, football players accelerating in a 40-yard dash. You see a lot of lateral motion right off the, the first step there. And that's the body using uh, mid-stance. With mid-stance and pronation, we get to the inside edge of the foot, and that pushes me to the other side of the body. So if I never get to that inside edge of the foot, and some athletes will use it more than others, depending on their sporting background and their history and their structure. But if I don't get to that inside of the edge of the foot at all, and it's a pure late stance, just machine gun type type start, uh, I'm going to tend to spin my wheels a little bit more. And so in some ways, uh, helping athletes. And I will say too, before I get too far, there's always exceptions to the rule. Someone's going to send me that. And, and again, this works for this guy. <laughs> uh, there's some uh, Japanese sprinter who just is massively rounded forward and just everything is just, it's just this high frequency, like machine gun start. And the guy runs like 10.00 or 10.01 or something in the hundred. So it works for that guy. I always want to look at what happens when we at least give you a few more movement options. And so for me, Allowing more mid stance to me, that's maybe we warm up for the sprinting. Well, one, just teaching patience too. And I, I think even um, even just having like some some foot like lat acceleration ladders is okay just to give a constraint, say, okay, we're gonna put these stick paint sticks out at these distances so that you're forced into this step pattern just to see how it feels like. It's not automatically your actual step pattern. And hopefully there's also some some room for play in there. Like you don't have to step on the stick, but Step between these two bars for step one, step between these two bars for step two. Let me see your strategy and how you manage it. So in addition to teaching patience and rhythm and crescendo work, buildups are really good for that. Just starting slow and then moving faster and just allowing that is a really good one. Allowing the shins to fall. So those all the different drills that you can use to help the shins, the feel shin drop, feel shins fall. Shins falling, especially in that first step, really. So in any acceleration too, I'll, I'll give a little background. So when I set up for a sprint, my shins will be at a certain angle to the ground. Let's just say the front shin is 45 degrees. That's pretty a pretty popular starting place for a lot of people. When the gun goes off or when I start take my first step into the sprint, that shin will fall to a lower angle. Let's say it falls to 30 degrees. It drops 15 degrees. And a lot of times in a track start, you'll actually see at the point where the knees cross in the first step, in a good explosive start, in a lot of athletes, you'll see those two shins at the exact same angle because the shin fell quite a bit to reach a low angle, or maybe it just started there, which is a little bit more rare. You have to be really fast to manage that one without tripping, <laughs> uh, but you can do it. Anyways, so we want to, in a good start, there is that drop and that drop fits with pronation and a little internal rotation in that front tibia. And so again, back to squatting, if you can't internally rotate your tibias and squatting, you're probably not going to be able to have a very good shin drop. And if you try, it's probably going to be forced on some level. So this does fit with what we can do from a general perspective. 
So I believe that for athletes to teach them patience, we, we do the typical, like we can do the ladders and the buildups and, and all those things. I also think it's a good idea to sometimes work in a little bit of mid stance. So we can do that actually through lateral drills. When we do lateral work and lateral change of direction, we really are getting into mid stance, even lateral like sled type pulls and pushes and things like that. Doing the lateral sled drags can really open up mid stance as well. And so for athletes who have like no side to side, like literally they are starting and they're just like, everything is a hundred percent linear. We could also give them a little more lateral play there. And that can also help the feeling of patience and rotation uh, as they're going along. I like, even if we were getting the transverse plane involved too, like things like David Weck has, uh, he calls it the Royal coil or some people have seen like, or a lot of people have seen like the coiling type exercises and so doing uh, like the royal coil type stuff, I found that to actually be really helpful for a lot of people with bounding. Helps to get the, the rib cage moving side to side a little bit. So that can be something if we're talking about three planes of motion, we can look at that as well. So we're just, we're opening up ranges and now let's see how you work with it. We opened up some range. We gave you some more options. How do you now choose to solve this problem? So those are some uh, ideas that hopefully you can utilize and play around with to see what athletes can, can do well with. But just again, remember, athletes are not machines. You know, for every football player, or not for every, I mean, I don't know, maybe for every 30 football players who use a lot of lateral sway in their 40 yard start and really use those mid stance options, you get that one, like that Japanese sprinter who's just like crazy late stance bent over. Uh, so there's always exceptions to the rule, and I always respect that. But I do want to give athletes at least those options to work with and solve the problem with. Okay, next question. Does walking affect fast switch fibers? So yeah, interesting question. And, and it's funny, I, I have respected or grown to respect the importance of the, the aerobic system more and more and more over my years as a coach. And just even as I just get older, just, just walking, just going for long walks. And I love walking. Uh, so I, I'm sure as with anything, I, you get to a certain point, I'm sure it's going to make you a little stiffer. Like if I walk 20 miles, I'm sure it's not going to have a great effect on my fast switch fibers. Imagine just going hiking. I, I'm not, I, I don't do regular research on the physiology, getting in the muscle fibers on these things. I'm not aware of anything in particular for this, but I've also heard too, some athletes are more fatigue resistant in the sense that they can do the aerobic work and their fast switch takes less of a hit than others. So some athletes will take more of a hit. I can tell you, I didn't get a muscle biopsy, but I'm almost positive when I do a lot of aerobic work, it destroys my fast switch ratio. I did distance running for about two months. Um, back in my mid twenties, I was just like kind of taking a break from explosive stuff for a while. And I, my legs were like bricks. Like I could barely grab the rim. It was so bad. So I definitely saw a big reduction there. I, I, walk, I think it's a little variable, but I think you're getting in nature and experiencing different surfaces and terrain levels. And if you can do like the barefoot shoes type thing, I, I think that's a real good positive, but as with anything, there's going to be a limit. So enough of walking, I'm sure certainly does. Okay. I had two people ask me, Max uh, Meritado and Kyle Ellis asked me about setups for high jump off-season weekly plan. Kyle Ellis asked yearly plyo program for high-level jumpers. So I'm going to give a, just kind of a general because I, I spent a lot of time on the first questions. This always happens. Way too much time on the first questions. We're running out of time. <laughs> so uh, we'll just go uh, kind of a general perspective on this one. So let's just say it's track jumping and you could maybe try to apply this to your sport of choice or whatever your jumping outlet is, but let's just say it's high jump or long jump or something. Here's just some general thoughts and ideas. So off season, you are, it's, it's in the summer or maybe it's the late summer if you're on the pro circuit or whatever, 
to me, this is time for jumps in the context of a different sport. So I think people are looking for a plyo plan. To me, the ultimate plyometrics are ones that there's also a level of intention. There's also a conversion of horizontal to vertical. And it's not just vertical, 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 like let's just say hurdle hops or something. And there's 3D and we're rotating 3D uh, in so many ways, like a running two foot jump has a has a rotation, a quick, like almost change the direction in some respects element right turned into the end of it. So there's these um, horizontal vectors with rotation, 3D rotation, moving into vertical. So I am a big fan of different types of team sport type jumps. So off season to me, I'm looking at jumps in context of a different sport. Uh, we just talked about this in the podcast not too long ago, playing volleyball in the off season. I, yeah, it was Dan John talking about like these, I think it's Victor Sanya, triple jumper, like he was really into volleyball. <laughs> so, and, and it's just, it's so simple. Just go play volleyball and, you know, have fun and get into it. So off season jumps in context of a different sport, go do volleyball, go do parkour, like minimal shoes on the rocks, jumping rock to rock is amazing. Especially if we're talking, getting into the specific nuances of like even lower strength, lower leg strength and integration and, and being in nature and stuff for the track dunking, go do low rim dunks and, and try to come up with a bunch of different dunks and have fun. And to be honest, in this portion, I really like, and I just mentioned the aerobic system, I think it's okay and and maybe even good. And I was not even maybe, I think it's good to actually have an aerobic component to these jumping. And what I mean by this is like if you were doing, let's say I was doing trail running in the woods and I have like these series of logs and rocks that I can kind of routinely jump over. And this is the off season, okay? Like this isn't like in-season power. This is totally general. But when I'm doing aerobic and I'm nose breathing, I almost feel like the body gives me more, almost what I'll call like free reps. Meaning if it's all aerobic, if everything you're doing is under the aerobic system, and you're not getting into the, the lactic system or the more explosive functions of our physiology. It's almost all like free energy. Like you can recover from it really fast. <laughs> it, it's for some reason, like anything, even think about like a basketball game. How many jumps do you take in a basketball game that you recover from way better than if you did all those plyos as separate, discrete, like hurdle hops and various things? You recover a lot faster. And there's something again to be said with the hurdle hops and just the pure vertical to vertical. But I believe that adding an aerobic component to add on some level to some of these things or like I've played uh, like chase tag in a stream with huge rocks where I'm jumping and bounding over rocks and I'm breathing kind of heavy. I think that the body, that's a, that's a good mix in the off season. It's like team sport, but with plyos and the aerobic level helps me to recover faster. So it's all recovery. And I also think there's almost a different state of mind on some level. Once there's at least some level of consistent movement and a little bit of fatigue, it's just a little bit different place. I know we say, you know, we talk about the aerobic system and you, you want to do the, the 40 yard dash and the fly tens and we need to not, there's, there's coaches who have ruined that for sure. Track coaches have ruined the aerobic system by abusing it, abusive tempo, as Rob Assis puts it. Absolutely. But nose breathing aerobic for like 10, 20, even 30 minutes, that's fine. The off season, it's not going to hurt you because when you're nose breathing, you're not getting too fright on fatigue. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. Uh, just basically sport-based jumps, uh, volleyball, parkour, dunking, you know, maybe even a small nose breathing aerobic component to it. Um, I think that's really good. Preseason. Now I'm moving there into more uh, what I would call constraint-oriented jumps. And even like jumps decathlon type stuff where it's not your specific event, specific event, but maybe it's close to it and you have like a scoring system. It's meaningful. There's still competition driving you and pushing you forward. We always want to pair jumps with some sort of, I would always call like a higher emotion, a greater purpose. Some of the, the best like gyms I've seen that get these great results. They have leaderboards for things. They have PRs with things. They have competitions. It's a very 
uh, competitive environment. So if you could come up with like a jumps to Cathlon, I saw, I talked to a Russian high jump coach uh, years ago who he, uh, I think he had jumped seven, six with a straddle technique back in the day, which is so crazy high using that technique and had jumped six, eight as a master's uh, jumper when he was 40, I think still doing the, the straddle technique. Talked a lot of training with him. He talked about this old like um, Soviet jumps decathlon. They would do half of it was like different um, bounds, I believe, like different types of bounds, like a standing triple jump, standing 10 jumps for distance, like a long jump with five step, a five step approach, all these things. And they all had a score. And then the other five events were like a throw, like maximal, uh, like a forward shot put throw between the legs, backwards overhead between the legs. It's just a same but different, non-specific to a level like decathlon type thing. And then at that point, I am also starting to obviously work my main event, but maybe with a little bit different constraints. Uh, I'm exploring different functions of the approach, perhaps like in high jump, for example, maybe I'm playing with the constraints of a little bit of bounding or rhythm changes in the middle of that approach. Maybe I'm doing some speed approaches where actually the athlete is running faster than normal even, and they're taking off over low bars, but going for more distance, perhaps, especially if they need more speed in their jump, which most, most high jumpers do, for example. But those kind of things, so constraints and then fun competitions that are also still same but different on a level. And then, because we do, the the brain is reward-based, and if we do too much specific jumping too early and all throughout the year, there just isn't that much to go from a novelty perspective. Once we've crossed that bridge, we have to maintain that intensity. And so, just we always look on building, we're still intense, but we're just framing it in different ways, that's all. And there is an art form to that. So then finally you get in season and you have your closer constraints to the actual events and, and it is much more specific. And then uh, at that point, even in the preseason, like, but, but in season, I also am looking at plyos there, like depth jumps more from a, I almost call it like a nitrous injection, like a nitrous fuel perspective. I'm going to go to just three sets of three, like kind of high depth jumps from the perspective of I'm, that is such a nervous system stimulant. It's going to bring up the level of your specific work. So hopefully that helps you out there. Um, not a whole lot of time, so we'll just try to do one or two more questions here. Actually, we'll just we'll take this one as the last. Kai Sullivan asks, how to speed jump like elite high jumpers, or you could say like a dunker from the free throw line. How do I get that that speed jump? And so for me, I think it's it's similar to the above in many perspectives. A speed jumping, a speed jumping takeoff is, it is actually not, like I could get faster at sprinting and, and I will say sprint speed and long jump, for example, 100%. Like that's absolutely massive. Once I move to dunking from the free throw line, like it's still important, but not quite as important because the vector is a little bit more vertical, uh, although still critical. So I will say get faster at sprinting, you know, time a 10 meter fly. That is a KPI there for sure. Uh, it's not the only KPI though. The other things I would work on are, of course, dunking and long jumping for distance so you could do a long jump with a five-step approach a seven-step approach a nine-step approach uh, do it off of both legs and then within the scope of actually jumping like let's say i have a hoop uh if you can do this it'd be nice if we all had a switch mat tan chu talked about this as bounding and doing bounding with a switch mat so you would hit a bound contact and how fast can i get that bound contact and then that's all if you can do that and work on the speedier bound contacts that's awesome but that's not necessarily easy so you can frame this a lot of different ways. I've busted out the iPhone and I've counted frames, but I'll do jumps where, and I've done this in high jump where I will say, I want you to get off the ground as fast as possible. And now we'll go count frames and let's see how fast that was. I mean, kind of is time consuming, but just trying to get people um, to feel like what it feels to get off the ground really fast. And sometimes, uh, and that's an important constraint because sometimes we just almost kind of mash into our foot 
uh, and we hang out. We really don't even transition or you could say we hang out in mid stance maybe too long. We don't transition a late stance fast enough, which it's all a spectrum. I talked about late stance and being stuck in it. But in a fast jump, we have to transition a late stance pretty quick. And you'll a lot of times see those speed um, jumpers. Like there's a, there's a video of an elite. It was like an Asian dunking artist. And he was jumping and dunking from the free throw line. It's one of the most insane free throw dunks I've ever seen. And this guy was like 5'9". And when you watched him do it, his back foot, he had gotten into late stance so fast and effectively that when he jumped, that back foot like kicked up behind him and almost kicked him in the butt. It was so loaded. And so just being able to manage quick ground contacts and then doing it from a variety of slightly different angles. Uh, but that's the big one. Get faster, practice jumping for distance, practice it from a different steps, and then also do some jumps where somehow you have feedback on how long you're on the ground. You may also want to try that feedback barefoot as well. Sometimes people just who don't have very good foot sensation, their feet don't work well in the shoes. No matter what they do, they just, because they don't have that feedback, it's just not very good. So you may need to start barefoot on a level. Barefoot's never going to work at high speed speed jumping because it's just too much friction for the, the skin of the feet. And it's just not going to work out very well. Or it's too much pressure point when you don't have some level of cushion. Work on those things. Uh, you should find those helpful in just getting off the ground just a little bit quicker. Remember, it's always specific. It's not just it's not just the magical plyo. I, I will say the last thing too is I, I will on the plyo train of things. Yeah, a lot of quick, extensive plyos and uh, not just quick ones, but also ones that do work the whole foot, work the whole foot laterally, like single leg, like medial and lateral rudiment hop type things and really digging in and noticing what's going on there, noticing where the pressure is on your feet, really going into that element of it that's going to be helpful for you as well. So, all right. Thank you guys so much who answered questions. I saw, I am sorry that I could not get to all of them. I did what I typically do and probably spent 20 minutes on a few and then not a whole lot of time on others, but I always appreciate the chance to re, uh, answer questions. Uh, so thanks again for all of you who submitted them to give me the opportunity. If you enjoy this podcast, this series and what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review. So whatever you're listening to this on, go to Spotify, to iTunes, whatever. Would totally appreciate a rating or review on this show and what we're doing. And uh, looking forward to getting you guys the next episode next week. So we will see you all then.